Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. My guest today is Arthur Kaz, the founder, CEO, and chief investment officer of Greenbrier Asset Management, a hedge fund based in Chicago. Greenbrier focuses on opportunistic investing throughout the capital structure with an emphasis on stressed credit, event-driven, and special situations. I hope you enjoy the wide-ranging conversation I had with Arthur today, focused on the credit cycle, the micro and macro of distressed investing, and where the current state of vulnerabilities are. I'm here with Arthur Kaz, the founder and CEO and CIO of Greenbrier Asset Management. It's a registered hedge fund based in Chicago, focused on distressed investing, capital structure investing, and investing in event-driven situations. Arthur, welcome to the Alpha Exchange. It's a pleasure to be here, Dean. Well, Arthur, we've got a lot of ground to cover today, and I think it's going to be extremely interesting to get your perspective on where we are in the cycle, where we've been in the cycle, the ins and outs of distressed investing, how to think about hedging in the context of investing in, in distressed securities. Why don't we start with your background? It's, a, it's an interesting one, the way in which you arrived ultimately to the hedge fund side of things. Why don't you walk us through your background and how you developed your skill set? Happy to, sure. I'm the founder of Greenbrier Asset Management. We're a credit-focused event fund headquartered in Chicago. I learned my craft working not in the Wall Street per se, but in the advisory end of the business. I was once upon a time a consultant to distressed companies, working for a boutique firm that used to parachute in and handle corporate reorganizations in Chapter 11. So you think about Enron and General Motors, those companies have specialized advisors to do that work, to negotiate with their creditor groups, to form plans of reorganization, to basically guide them through the process of corporate rehabilitation. And so I literally worked from one side of the table in my career to the other side of the table, now handling some of the same teams of people that I worked with and for. So take us through one, one or two of those types of situations and the timing of them, and then specifically the way in which this boutique firm delivered a, a product ultimately to, to the client that was in need. Walk us through a little bit more specifically what that work looked like. Sure, sure. And one of the core tenets about distress is this question of who the, the real owner is. So when a, when a company finds itself in a distress situation, typically because it's accumulated too much debt, can't pay its bills, the question then becomes how best to maximize the value. And in the United States, our laws are very favorable to the company and that the company needs time to sort its affairs out. It can do so with the belief being that it's more valuable as an enterprise than sold in, in its parts. And so the, the job of a reorganization is to determine sort of who gets what. And the interesting part, the attractive part as an investor is oftentimes you're able to, if you see value that others can't identify, you're able to very cheaply acquire what later can become the common shares or the equity over the organization. And I think your question about where the business has evolved, it's a very um, process-driven investment style. 
And what I mean by that is some very specific skills, some of them operational, some of them financial, some of them legal to understand how to get from say point A to point B. If you if you think about the big, large corporate reorganizations in the last 10 or 15 years, you know, these take uh, on the order of, of years, not, not months or quarters. You arrived on the hedge fund scene in 2006. And a little bit of context for that period, I certainly remember we were in the latter half, but still a, a vibrant half of a credit bubble that of course ended in calamity. We had a very, very low VIX, probably averaged around 12 for the year of 2006. And we were amidst quite a strong upsurge in, in housing prices. There was a sense among us all that nothing could go wrong. And certainly credit markets were the poster child of, of that, uh, that view. And yet there were situations that you very quickly became involved in during your, the beginning of your hedge fund tenure that were distressed situations. Why don't you give us a little bit more insight on, on those? Sure, sure. I, and I think you might be alluding to what happened in the North American auto sector in 2008. That was, I think it was the summer of 2005. Recall that both Ford and GM got their double downgrades to junk. And then the rest, of course, is history. But maybe a point I would make about moving from everything was fine. The market absolutely was very certain about its uncertainties. We looked at 2007, 2008 to what eventually took place. The companies that found themselves in distress, some of that must have had to do with the individual decisions of management. But an empirical study of, of how distress works, most of the causal influences of how a company arrives in distress are really outside of the boardroom. They're industry factors. And that's why you'll see things like an entire industry, as in the case of North American autos, the whole sector tips towards distress, it becomes an unfinanceable, unrefinanceable operation. And then you see things like General Motors and Chrysler and 45 other tier one suppliers all looking for chapter 11 protection. Now, of course, the, the crisis itself tipped a lot of things into distress, if not bankruptcy. But what specifically about autos cuz again some of these things were happening before the financial crisis was it was it rates was it just the ability to pile on too much leverage was it a slowing of sales what what are the, what are some of those factors to generalize what was going on in the north american autos in the in that time frame they had some very large secular headwinds in consumer credit it was a bubble that had been building for a long time way too much dealer inventory uh, they had labor contracts that were not aligned to their business models and had no choice but to run the, the factories at, a, at an unprofitable level. But back to the point about the industry forces, I mean, what, what you could probably say about autos there and similar to what the airlines experienced a few years before with telecom and, and going through the various different cycles in different industries, it's typically the confluence of a cyclical business hitting the wall of some secular force. Retail, probably the most topical example. What Amazon has done to brick-and-mortar retail has been a long time coming, but we've sort of reached this, this inflection point. And in my world, the inflection point gets to where the top of the capital structure and lenders are no longer willing to extend credit, no longer willing to amend or extend or advance to roll whatever exposure they have. 
and I, I'll maybe make a point about this because I think there's some phraseology that gets batted around about distress when people want to see how far away are we from a distress cycle. They pull up the chart that shows maturities against high yield and, and that wall of maturities concept. There's always a wall of maturities. Like there's always things to worry about here. But the wall of seniorities is an is a analysis that I like to look at. When do the senior lenders, the ones who really have the ability to say, we're not extending anymore and have the company precipitate a restructuring, where's their breaking point? And I think we saw that with autos. We saw that with airlines. We're seeing it now with retail. And I wanted to talk a little bit about airlines and, and that cycle as well. It, it strikes me as a very capital intensive, very high debt type of industry, a lot of fixed costs. What are the similarities and what are the differences in the auto cycle versus the airline cycle? So in both of those cases, labor, a very important constituent at the table. And people don't appreciate this, but labor has its own cycle, the contract cycle. Every five years, they get to renegotiate, they get to reopen those contracts. And so sources of profitability of the company become sources of value for the for organized labor. You also saw the oil and fuel as a cycle, a negative contributor to the big three because they were so heavily exposed to trucks. So they had the, the problem of these two cycles aligning themselves. And in some ways, the, the most recent airline bankruptcy, American, had a similar situation. Oil was spiking at exactly the worst time for them. So in some ways, the cyclical forces that underlie them, if they find themselves even aligning like these two examples I've given you, they can be devastating as well. And so specific to, let's say, the American Airlines bankruptcy, can you, to the extent you can, give us a sense as to where you and your team members get involved in that trade? What does the process look like? What are the instruments that you use in order to take a position? What are the instruments that you use in order to potentially buy yourself time to stay in the position? And then I think it's a very interesting facet of distressed investing, which is there's a lot of finance, but there's a lot of operational factors in terms of where the situation goes. There's certainly a lot of legal questions. What's the mix of different areas of expertise that you and your team used to Get inside of it. Happy to tell the story. Most people can remember the American Airlines bankruptcy, November 29th, 2011. Make sure I got my years straight on that. A bit off cycle because if you remember uh, Northwest Airlines, Delta Airlines, they filed for bankruptcy many years before and American was kind of hopeful that it would be able to make its way out without having to avail itself of chapter 11. They, I believe, realized a bit too late that they were going to suffer the survivor's curse. Survivor's curse meaning all of your competitors have been able to right-size their cost structures and then they hadn't. But Americans surprised the world, I think, when the Monday after thanks, the long Thanksgiving holiday, the Wall Street Journal reported that shortly after midnight on that morning that they had indeed filed for Chapter 11. So the first question as a distressed investor is, of course, what's the story there? Why? Why do they need to do it? And why do they choose to do it in such a um, quick and dark of night fashion? That story, I think, is, as history would judge, was, was interesting unto itself. They were concerned that the pilots who had the ability to retire and elect lump sum pensions, imagine 10,000 pilots with an average pension of a million dollars, if they got the sense that American was going to be planning for a bankruptcy, then they would kind of rush and beat the uh, financial creditors to the punch. And so in, in a real way, I think that the Board of American felt like it had to do it as quickly as it could. Once we got to the point of diligencing this, then the situation became a little bit more understandable. And uh, American Airlines had a $27 billion balance sheet 
my team at the time, we had on average no less than 10 individual positions running between individual ETCs and aircraft financing. So we actually owned the tails of planes to high yield bonds of different varieties and flavor. We There was tax to municipal debt on airport runways across the country. So a lot of different instruments to pick and choose from. A very, it's a very nice case in the sense that it was a, a complex beast. But as I said before, the, the question of reorganization is always a question of ownership and, and the who gets what. And what was interesting about American individually was this was happening at a time when U.S. Air was in play. And so not only was it one of the more successful in-court reorganizations, it also took place at the time of a merger, which created the world's largest airline simultaneously. So the people that I think did the best of understanding what was going on there are the ones who were really at the table, the financial creditors, who played a hand in deciding how the merger would take place, not just the material terms of the, the economic terms of the merger, but how the plan would be implemented and some really creative solutions that come from some really experienced and smart advisors at the table. I think if, if you went back and looked at the most interesting part of the investment, it turned out to be the pre-petition common stock of American. There was a, about a year where that traded with a $200 million public float and uh, 12 months outside of bankruptcy, it traded to a $20 billion float. So a lot of return to investors there. We'll talk a lot about current markets, but just as we're on the topic of airlines and uh, you've been known to fly a few miles here and there, what would you say post a lot of this reorg, what would you say is the current state of affairs in the airline business from the potential investors standpoint? I think that the airline industry is a very difficult industry to time investments. I think it was Warren Buffett who famously said if there were a capitalist around it, Kitty Hawk, he would have shot down the Wright brothers. But I think that like any of these investments that we talk about through a distressed cycle, value gets created through a process. Value gets created through right-sizing contracts, through rejecting leases to aircraft, jettisoning unprofitable business lines like what they were planning to do with their regional carrier Eagle. And those effects, I think we'll see how long American can take advantage of those four. I mean, it was uh, five years ago that it left bankruptcy. And as I said earlier, the uh, labor does have the opportunity to come back to the table every five years and reevaluate their standing in, in, in this. I think those are the risks of holding on an airline for any period of time, as, as would be the case with any manufacturing concern that has a, a significant labor constituent. But the takeaway, I think, from whether it was the Northwest Airlines bankruptcy, the Delta Airlines bankruptcy, United's before that, US Air 1 and 2, there is value creation through a process. And distressed investors, successful ones, realize how they can combine their capital and their know-how of that process to influence an outcome, a superior outcome. So let's also talk about oil, as we're talking about fuel costs and airlines. And the big oil crash that started in 2014, well into 2015, and certainly in the process created quite a bit of dislocation in the energy high yield market. What do you have to say about the concept that we had this big dislocation in a very important part of the market, it created distress for energy companies, but ultimately was not the onset of a new credit cycle that was 
very broad with respect to what it impacted. It tended to stay very specific to energy and certainly things like industrials and materials sold off in concert, but it didn't become this broad, distressed cycle. What, what do you say about that? What, what does it tell you about perhaps the impact of central banks or the strength of the US economy? What, what are some of your takeaways from that time period? I think one of the lessons of the unwind of energy, and I'll talk about North American high yield as sort of the epicenter of it all, those weren't well thought out financing decisions, not by the company nor by the investors. If you think about a upstream E&P company, for example, there is an asset that sits in the ground, and then there is a technology that allows that asset to be exploited. A high-yield bond isn't really an appropriate financing vehicle to achieve those goals. I think we kind of collectively can see why now. But I agree with you that 2015 was as contained as it was sharp in its impacts. It gave investors, it gave creditors a reminder of just how maybe vulnerable some of those enterprises were. And it wasn't simply that the price deck of crude was now creating an uneconomical proposition to remove the oil from the ground from these companies. It was much worse than that. Like most of those distressed companies were trading at a vast, vast discount to their present value, their PV10 curves on any price deck you could find. It simply became unrefinanceable. Maybe a, a good example of what I was saying to you about the wall of seniorities. It was the the inflection point for crude there was happened when the RBL community, they, that's a term that's used in this space, the reserve-based lenders, those who are in the first out position. Imagine they're the asset-based lenders in a, in a retail equation. When they had reached their limits and said, no moss, this is really was the, the catalyst for that sector going into distress. So, so two questions. One is the recapitalization of the sector because things tightened dramatically and there was fresh capital that got put to use. There were private funds started. I wanted you to comment on that because it does feel like the market reached a stress point, but ultimately there was opportunistic supply of capital into the market, which effectively stemmed the tide of spread widening. That there was some bankruptcies, of course, but there felt like the the cycle never became something that was longer in duration because this capital stepped up. That's one. And maybe it's a related question too. There's a scenario to paint where distress in one part of the market is significant enough where it kind of metastasizes into something larger, and that just didn't happen. So perhaps there are related questions, but how did it resolve itself during that time? I think you're 100% correct in saying that what's noticeably different about that and say the financial crisis was that metastasizing event. In the financial crisis, the part of those RBL lenders were played by the commercial paper market, you know, the overnight market. And so that is really where a contagion takes place. If the RBL lenders had been money center banks who then had decided that they couldn't extend overnight financing into chemicals and industrials, I think that's the transmission mechanism before something becomes more systemic. We didn't have that in oil and gas, perhaps because the financiers in, in the RBL market are just a niche group of five or 10 providers. You don't find them in mortgages and things like that. But I wouldn't go so far as to credit 
the private capital that stepped in is a stabilizing influence. I don't know that that is as important to why it didn't become more contagion. I think it is much more to do with the fact that the the lenders who were stepping back from the table weren't also lending into other stressed organizations. Let's talk about the financial crisis. You mentioned it. And so we are literally in the 10-year anniversary period. I consider it from September 08 to March 09. And it was right around this time in, in October of 2008 where the VIX hit one of its north of 80 closes. So quite a bit of a different environment than we've seen in the last couple of years where we've registered exceedingly low vol. So amidst that calamity, I'm wondering if you can just bring us some perspective as to things you remember that were truly extraordinary during that time period, lessons that you took away from a risk identification standpoint, a risk management standpoint, things that continue to color your views around markets, around portfolio construction. Love to hear some thoughts. Sure. Well, I think we all have those, I'll never forget where I was when I heard moments in in the story of the financial crisis. Maybe my personal favorite was watching the headline roll across CNBC that the reserve primary fund had broken the buck and realizing that I never thought that that sentence could be constructed, but there it was. And then the the ensuing malaise when uh, it was Goodyear Tires Treasury that had to own the fact that it had its cash sitting in that fund. So those were the those were the things. True contagion. Around. True contagion. Yes. But one of the things that I I think in the history of understanding the financial crisis that probably doesn't get enough lip service anymore is the role that structured credit and passively managed vehicles played in it. And I don't just talk about mortgage backs. I, I mean that the CLOs that became zombie funds. In the 10 years that have transpired, the loan market has grown unabated. The preponderance of passively managed strategies, not just in loans, but now in, in bonds, it's pervasive. And so the question as to whether these structures and these vehicles and these funds can withstand the test of a market dislocation, I think is anybody's guess. We, we saw, and I think your firm was on the forefront of this, we saw in February of this year, something spectacular happened to some very poorly designed volatility products. When I think about risk management, I think about that. Is there a potential for a pro-cyclical behavior on the part of whether it's the largest ETFs that are responsible for the majority of the flow trading that's going on right now, or any of these other private credit passively managed structures. So CLOs versus CDOs is an interesting distinction. And in the context of the financial crisis, the CDOs had exceptionally high levels of default. Many of them went literally to zero. The mark-to-market behavior of CLOs was certainly tested. There was a lot of distress in the price, but the ultimate defaults were actually quite reasonable. And so easy to say, but if you would have held on, a lot of this stuff was, was money good. Can you describe a little bit about the CLO business as an asset gatherer, as a passive vehicle? Give us a sense as to, again, when you think about the growth of something that perhaps makes you uncomfortable, maybe it doesn't. I, I, as a 
follower of these cross-asset relationships. I'm just a consumer of statistics around covenants being eroded. I'm a consumer of statistics around growth and the potential for liquidity mismatches in some of these products. But walk us through exactly what is the CLO product, how is it used, and in the modern day of the CLO, give us a, a sense as to, from a sizing standpoint, how big this universe is. Well, if you've been following the statistics around covenant quality, I love the term covey light because it's a, it's a misnomer. There are so few covenant packages left. The term really should be covenant heavy in my mind. But uh, a CLO, like a CDO, is a structure where the assets are the individual loans that are held. And the manager of the CLO raises debt instruments against them. And through the magic of diversification, they're able to issue higher rated liabilities to the financing entities. So you can pool a bunch of B2B loans in and you'll have a, at least one tranche of AAA credit. And so that's the magic of CLOs. And, and one of the things that was happening both in 2006, 2007, and again today, I think it's probably a fair characterization of the CLO market that it is a solution in search of a problem. Back in 2007, something like 60% of all CLOs went for acquisitions. And some crazy number of LBO financing was CLO bought. Today, we have the same phenomena, although I, I wish I had those statistics here today. But mark my words, this is now not just a product that's being pulled through the street, but it's being pushed. And what I mean by that is you find yourself a debt syndicated group and they find a CLO manager that's willing to do a $400 million vehicle. The only thing that's missing is a borrower. So find us an M&A deal or find us a company that some sponsor can borrow because we're standing here prepared to lend that sponsor money. That's the pull. And I think that we are having the same conversations today that we were 10 years ago on this point, which is, is this a, a, a really a healthy amount of leverage and is this the right way to go about financing these companies? One thing I, I would also point out is the number of small companies that have access to the, the market of loans through middle market and now micro market CLOs, that's a business that didn't exist before. And, and it's a classic shadow banking example where big commercial lending banks used to perform functions similar to this. When they stepped away from the table post-crisis, the communities, some of them hedge funds, stepped into the void. And now you have a very active market now for CLO loan issuance. What is the interaction between the high-yield bond market and the loan market? And when do you see growth in one part of the market? And are there implications for growth in one part of the market at different points in the cycle that or either some sign of resilience for, for the economy and the markets or some sign of, of vulnerability? A very topical question because the, the short answer to this is higher rate environments, the loan asset class, a loan category has attraction, has appeal for obvious reasons. It has a floating rate coupon. And so borrowers, they worry about this insofar as they haven't swapped out that risk, but creditors feel protected against rising rates. In fact, this is happening right now as we speak the loan issuance is accelerating. It's not slowing down. High yield issuance is quite the opposite. For net issuance, it's almost non-existent as we sit here right now. So the loan market has been a rate hedge product 
has and always will be. But what's happening kind of behind the scenes is the leverage statistics going up, the credit quality is going down. Like you said, covenant protection is non-existent. And so it could just be that for lack of any real comfortable place to find yield and believing that we are now entering into a new rate regime, the loans are the unintended beneficiary of this. And am I getting paid in your mind? So I'm, I'm clipping a, a spread leveraged loan that is associated with the risk that I'm taking. You mentioned covenant light as maybe not even the best terminology these days because so few have covenants. We should count the ones that do have covenants. When you step back and you look at previous cycles, what you're getting essentially to be the provider of capital where the payback is subject to some uncertainty. How do you measure that trade-off? Am I getting paid enough from a credit spread standpoint relative to whether it's the the macro dynamics of where corporates are in the cycle, or you mentioned some of the leverage ratios that seem uncomfortably high. How would you score it for us? Is it a substantial disconnect? And I will preface my long question by saying, boy, the graveyard of hedges is a significant graveyard at this point. People have burned out a lot of premium and realized they're fighting a very uphill battle. How would you put all this in context? I think that your last comment is a very important one. It is not at the point where the risk reward is so poor that we would be advocating shorting any of the fixed income that exists there because simply the demand to deliver positive returns is as pressing as it's ever been. But the possibility that in a swift repricing of credit spreads, there will be no supporting technicals for it. I think that we are approaching that point right now. Let me let me say something about the reality of distress cycles. Individual companies might on their own be able to reorganize in a, in a way that maximizes value to creditors that doesn't exist when the whole industry is in a similar situation. So when you think about, for example, um, CDS spreads, the model for CDS spreads just takes as a, as a given that defaulted bonds are going to give you 40 cents on the dollar. Now, like sometimes they give you more and sometimes they give you less. The perspective to keep is how many other defaulted bonds are in the universe at the time you're trying to determine what your recovery is. I think that's the cautionary tale. If we are comfortable financing companies right now because we think default rates are going to remain under 3% as they have for the last few years, that's a debatable assumption. But if you find yourself into a world where default rates trend back to 5 6 7%, hard to imagine that recoveries are going to remain as intact as they did in the last five years. So let's talk about the role of the sell side in all of this. One of the things that most have seen are, is that somewhat foreboding chart of the primary dealer inventories, which uh, seems to have peaked right before the crisis ensued. The books from the big banks were, were large and active and often had a prop component to them, but they certainly played a substantial role in price discovery and facilitated risk transfer at a size that uh, appears to be quite substantially larger than anything you can get done now. Give us some context on that. And then specifically to the CLO question, there's that term I came across, loan to own, which uh, is this money gets raised, people buy the bonds, and that's it. We're just going to hold them. That would seem, if you're, if you're worried about crisis, 
you're always worried that someone's hand is going to get forced. That's what creates a spiral from a unwind standpoint. And certainly that a lot of that happened in, in during the crisis. Are things very different now? Are people's time horizons different now? Give us some of your thoughts on just the overall universe of, of liquidity. I think your point about the sell side as risk intermediator is is the the key here. Ten years ago, the flow desks at these bulge bracket banks all had a prop function within them. So even if they weren't explicitly an asset manager, they had a buy side like book. And that was extremely useful for making sure that small problems remain small problems. Fast forward to today, none of that exists. There is no real prop function taking place at any of these banks, which has, I think, gone part and parcel as to why the mechanics of trading and I have lived this, I've experienced it firsthand, what used to be, okay, I'll take an order for 10 and do five on the uh, 10 million bonds and I'll trade five here on the wire with you and I'll have to work the other five to find the other side of the trade. That has become, I'll take an order for two and put 1 million up on the tape here with you right now. So, and that is, that is the reality of the markets today. So again, posit whether in a true repricing of risk where the liquidity premium gets reset if there is going to be any hope of risk intermediation. I worry personally about the structure of the market and how the sell side just is not performing that function any longer. I agree with you. The ETFs have been a big part of the overall growth of financial products. There is an ETF for everything. And certainly in credit, we've watched here at Macro Risk Advisors, I've done a fair amount of trading in, in the HYG as an example. I'm curious, when you look at the HYG and how it interacts with the credit market from a flow standpoint, help us understand the newness of that and ultimately the extent of its impact on, on credit. Well, certainly J&K and HYG are significant pieces of the primary new issuance market today. And I think there are there are a significant cause for why liquidity behaves the way it does insofar as the primary window and the liquidity that exists in the primary window to the secondary window is, is divergent. The HYG and JNK complex, my professional opinion, it's really dominated by two types. Those who want to see that sort of factor exposure and those who want to use it as a hedging instrument. In fact, I just saw a statistic about the short interest on HYG is now pushed higher yet again. We've done both. But the natural inclination for us is to use those products as hedging instruments. And so let's just go through an example of what I mean by that. I've got a portfolio of cash bonds and I'm a little worried about what the future brings. And so I will go to the first most effective, most liquid insurance policy I can find and it might be HYG puts. And by virtue of my selling short HYG, or maybe I'm selling outright short on HYG, the next morning when the market opens, the NAV becomes a discount rather than a premium to NAV. So the second step or the second chapter you're, you're of that story- You're saying that it's selling gets significant yeah, So we, Right. So I, let's assume that the guys who own cash bonds have the same attitude at the same time that they need to take risk down and they use the ETF as a hedging vehicle. So naturally the price of J&K trades then lower, discounting it to its underlying NAV. That's a sign for 
the ETF arbitrageurs to step in and try and buy the cheap one, sell the expensive one, take the other side of that. The challenge is now they're putting out sell axes for the cash bonds that we were concerned we needed to protect. And the interplay between the ease at which I'm able to sell the ETF versus the difficulty that that participant has to go and find the bonds to short, that's, I think, where a potential technical problem exists. There was, as you mentioned earlier, the, the big VIX event from from February, which started in this dark corner of the inverse ETFs, created a havoc in the VIX complex itself, and led to a remarkable bout of illiquidity in one of the most, if not the most liquid option in the world, the S&P 500. So there, were, there was a period on Monday and Tuesday where the, the breakdown was so significant that the bid offer spreads were like nothing you've seen before outside of perhaps in the crisis itself, or maybe the flash crash is another time I can remember. And I recall you and I talking on the phone on Friday morning of that week, because remember, you had a massive drawdown on Monday. It's some recovery. Thursday was an awful day. We lost about the same amount, almost 4% in the S&P. And Friday opened up very weak as well. And this is where you and I, we were, we were talking about the implications for the high-yield market where there's a little bit of a lag effect, where the discount to NAV may ultimately force outright selling in bonds into a market that is illiquid by its very nature. Your perspective on the February event, and since the VIX is not your home asset class, but of course is related to credit spreads and distress, how did you think through this event? And, and just as you watch through things moving around in your portfolio, what were the what were the takeaways? So it's a it's a great intro to another potential concern or source of concern for me at least. The short interest in a product like HYG. It actually gets exacerbated for two reasons. One is the number of people trying to short the shares. The second is what happens when a redeem event occurs. And just a little bit about how HYG and JNK work. You hand over not a perfect basket of the index, but you hand over a sort of a subset of the of the index. And they do that for liquidity reasons. So they they sacrifice tracking for the possibility of liquidity. But the issue of using it as a hedging vehicle. And then having individuals needing to either buy or sell the cash bonds underneath them, I think that there are some similarities between that and what became the event, the, the VIX event in February. I don't know if I lose sleep over this, but I think that it should be clear that these products that have only been around for really the last 10 years have not been time tested they have not seen what real market dislocation looks like and feels like. And as the product sort of boomerangs back and forth on an almost daily basis between someone who's principally a cash bond investor to someone who's principally an ETF investor, you can actually feel the effects. So I want to ask you a question on correlations, which specifically is in the context of a credit investor, you've got two sources of spread. The starting part, of course, is the the base interest rate, right? The the risk-free rate. And then on top of that, you're paid a credit spread. In normal times, and certainly the last 15 or so years, this risk-on, risk-off regime, which has been quite pronounced, there's an internal hedge going on there, right? On my risk-off days, my credit spread is going to widen, but duration is going to rally. And so I've got a mitigation of the loss. We saw in the period before 
the VIX meltdown. And then again, in the last week, we saw this rare but important interaction between credit spreads and interest rates where interest rates were rising and they were rising quickly enough to become a source of discomfort for investors. And so there you saw both rates rising and credit spreads widening at the same time, somewhat of a double whammy. How do you think about that? Is it a chief source of concern that the market may not fully appreciate as we head into this new realm of monetary policy tightening? What are the implications? Sure. Let me say something about the phenomena of where we are today. The best performing ratings category has been triple Cs. And by the way, double B is the worst. Within high yield, triple B is the worst in, in IG. Within that statement, one, one might say, well, that, that goes to show you that you need spread to sort of shock absorb your rate increases. And that could be an explanatory variable. So if you want to believe that's the case, then I think you're okay trading down in credit quality for the duration. I think there might be something else at foot there. And it runs back to the liquidity of the markets, the structure of the markets, to that reality of if you are interested in getting risk off, you necessarily do it where you can. You necessarily go to the easiest place to find your hedges. And so our market belief is that the initial stages of a quality unwind, the initial stages of a credit cycle widening are going to have the same characteristic. It's going to look like double B, triple C compression. Meaning you're going to see triple Cs outperform. You're going to see double Bs underperform. Not to be mistaken for a typical use of spread to soften the blow of rates, but it's people are rotating out of what they can. And as you look at the current state of markets, the world, the price of risk, the monetary policy cycle, and you look forward with no crystal ball, of course, but for an appreciation of, of cycles and, and for an appreciation for price, what's your general sense? Uh, again, I think a bit more macro, but what is your general sense on the appropriateness of the level of compensation that one is able to receive in credit markets broadly? Well, there's very little compensation in credit markets broadly, or you know, certainly today, very little. So maybe I could answer your question by saying, I think one of the features that's dramatically underestimated is the amount of net new issuance that's taken place and the relative size of the market today versus 10 years ago, that the triple Bs alone are more than 200% what they were in 2009. And then the same is almost true generally for high yield. So these are much, much larger global portfolios that we're talking about that have, of course, not been time-tested through, through a rate cycle. So I can't imagine that someone who is thinking about putting an incremental dollar to work today feels that there's adequate risk-reward going on in that. And is it a function of the economic cycle? Uh, we just did some work on trying to size up the strength and durability of the U.S. economic outlook. And where we wind up with is things are very, very strong. It's, it's hard to get away from the notion that without, let's say, an uptick in the unemployment rate from 3.7 to 5, noting that there are plenty of risk-offs that come from Donald Trump's Twitter account, the XIV, 
a geopolitical flare-up, these types of internal issues the market constantly confronts. But to me, it seems like it's the collision of a vulnerable stretched market with respect to risk-taking that might have been a sign of the times in terms of the cycle demands overlaid with a weakening economy. I'm curious if you share that view or as you sort of look forward over the next couple of years that we were talking about this uh, distress cycle that never came that people were hoping would come. Is it coming? What do the next couple of years look like for you? If you were invested in high-yield energy in 2015, it didn't matter what the real economy was doing to you right there. So I'm not trying to espouse a reflexivity here, but I think that the the relationship with rates and, and defaults, it has been wound so tightly for so long that there doesn't really need to be that much of a perturbation to potentially dramatically reset things. In fact, I'm still searching for an explanation as to what's been going on in the last couple of weeks, let alone February. So I, I think that definitely there's this question of what's the most accommodative fundamental backdrop that you can envision. And it's not that far away from what we have right now. That doesn't make me want to buy credit spreads here now today. In fact, I think the things that that are driving credit spreads today look a lot different than what they used to. In fact, the, the VIX at 20 would suggest to you that, that high yield spreads need to back up another 50 basis points. Certainly, rate vol and equity vol, they're doing things that have not happened before together. Right. It is very interesting. If you look at the February event, which was so U.S., and U.S. equity and VIX-centric that a lot of the cross-asset vol analysis that we look at illustrated the extent to which it was very concentrated in S&P. And you saw these relationships get really thrown out of whack where S&P volatility was at a premium, for example, to Eurostox volatility. Very rare that you would see that. This past bout of volatility is similar in that, not to the same magnitude, but when I talk to folks that are more active, for example, in trading FX volatility or interest rate volatility, and I ask them, how you doing? You know, you should be excited. They'll say, well, done okay. Seen some volatility, but this was, again, a, a much more equity-centric event. And, and for us, we try to uncover the why of it and the speed with which things changed. And there's a lot of folks trying to get an explanation for how a market can get so in over its skis so quickly after things were pretty benign. And a lot of the explanation points to some of these technically driven strategies that tend to be amplifiers into the market. They they sell because vol is going up. And I think it's worth studying. And I think for the credit markets, the question around illiquidity continues to be an incredibly important one. I'll perhaps leave you with this question. If there's ever a debate that needs to happen now in credit, it's really the uh, the debate about when, not if, and if it's going to happen quickly. Because the reality that increasing cost of capital means that borrowers pay more for debt, that's just, that's physics. And whether that is felt next year or the year after, the year after, it's going to be felt. In fact, it's a little bit like, I think your firm has written about this, the memory that Vol has. The fact that corporate America has had such a long run of cheap borrowing has influenced the way they see the world tomorrow. And when that reality starts to change for them, when that perception of what their financing rates will look like starts to change, I think that's when you're going to get some real undeniable change. 
We will leave it there. Arthur Kaz, thank you for being a guest on the Alpha Exchange. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. Mm